praise God. I like that song. You know, see, man, I love that song. What a fabulous testimony. Jesus saved sinners by his grace. Uh, we are all sinners here, and if you... Uh, uh, if you didn't know that, um, news to you, you're a sinner, you're an imperfect person, but the good news of the gospel is that God is a God of grace, and he rescues sinners, and I'm so thankful that he's rescued me, a sinner. Um, you know, I, I don't know uh, if anybody's a college football fan in here, but if we can just, before we get into the message, anybody, anybody a Boomer Sooner? Do we have any Oklahoma fans? I'm sorry, bro. That was tough, my friend. You got one in here. That was, that was a tough game yesterday. I was watching that, and I was really rooting for that onside kick to be, uh, you know, but anyway, it didn't happen. Uh, anybody not care about college football at all? Just want to make sure I'm hitting uh, nobody in the room. All right, one guy back here. He and I are connecting. Hey, I do, I do want to uh, recognize a couple things that happened this week. One was there was a, a big uh, fundraiser for student ministries that went really well, and, and others who are going to, the, yeah, did, okay, so, so some lovers of escape rooms. Uh, so I, I take it that you escaped. That's good. It's good news. All right, so the escape room happened over the weekend. It was great, and we had party of the barn last Sunday. Anybody go to the Party of the Barn? Just any, any, yeah, do you guys appreciate that? Yeah, it was a great time. I thought Party of the Barn was a blast. Uh, Liz helped organize that whole deal. She's here in the service. She hates being recognized, so uh, you can uh, look at Liz, make her feel very uncomfortable. Also, thank her for the work she did and, uh, and organizing that. So it's important always to recognize those who uh, use their gifts of administration and others, you know, to make things happen. So we appreciate you, Liz, and thank you for the work you did for that. All right, on to Get Fit. Sorry, this last message of this series, uh, we thought we've been talking about, you know, sort of practical things of faith, so getting fit relationally, getting fit, you know, financially. We talked about, uh, you know, getting fit psychologically. This week we're going to talk about getting fit spiritually, and I, I'm going to get really practical today, and I hope that it's helpful to you in the practicalities of the teaching. I really do hope that you'll find uh, something here that'll be helpful and, uh, you know, applicable to your everyday life. And kind of the big question of the text here today, for me anyway, is how do you work the gospel in everyday life? Like, how do you make the gospel a reality in your everyday life? Uh, there are two things I'm going to uh, sort of promote for you today. Is that one is you have to learn how to apply the gospel. You need gospel application. Uh, to work the gospel in your everyday life, you need to be able to have some stools. Some, some stools. <laughs> that was a misspeak right there. All right, some tools, all right? Um, <laughs> where did that come from? All right, some, some tools, all right, for applying the gospel well. And what you see in John 14 is you see Jesus. Oh, I'm like all, all about it today. Right, you see Jesus uh, uh, properly applying the, the gospel. So I want you to follow the flow of thought here. All right. In John 14, he begins his conversation in John 14 to his disciples by saying, do not be anxious. Uh, you'll see, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, believe in God. Believe also in me. Do not be anxious, in other words. Now, why is he giving this counsel to his disciples in John 14? Well, in John 13, Jesus has had uh, the, you know, he introduced the Lord's Supper. He said, somebody's going to betray me, somebody's going to deny me, and I'm dying on the cross. And so there's lots of reasons to be troubled. And the guys are sitting around, and they're troubled. They, they feel a little anxious. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So he says, believe in God. Do not be anxious, believe in God. Uh, this is kind of the kind of key on the flow of thought here. So let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he gives us kind of some, some insight into the nature of God. He says that God loves you. Do not be anxious. Believe in God. God loves you. And here's how he communicates that. 
He says in John 14, 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. In other words, there's room for you in my Father's house. And if you didn't know that, this, is, this may be news to you, but God loves you so much that there's room for you in his house. He's got plenty of room in his house. He's not at capacity, even no, nowhere near at capacity. And so if you've ever wondered if there's room for me in God's house, there's room for you in God's house. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to there to prepare a place for you. And so not only is he saying, don't be anxious, believe in God, God loves you, he's saying God has a plan for you. He gives us some hints into the plan here in verses 2 and following. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you that I go. I'm, I'm, I'm executing the plan. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to, to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus is saying, hey, I've got a plan for you. God's got a plan for you. I am really the plan for you. And that's the big idea next, is Jesus is God's plan for you. So when you follow the flow of thought here, he's saying, do not be anxious. Believe in God. God loves you. God has a plan for you. And Jesus is God's plan for you. So Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. In other words, the way is not a path that you follow. The way is a person whom you follow. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he says, do not be anxious, guys. Believe in God. God loves you. God has a plan for you. Jesus Jesus is God's plan for you, and Jesus proves God's love for you. He says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, if you want to know what the Father thinks of you, look to Jesus' ministry. He puts on display what the Father thinks of you. God the Father sent his Son for you because he loves you, to rescue you, to live the life that you could not live, to die the death that you should have died on the cross because of your sins. He paid off your debt. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again, conquered sin and death, and has given you new life. That's the promise of the gospel. Jesus is God's plan. He's proof that God loves you. So I want you to see here that Jesus helps their anxiety by gospeling them. That's a made-up word, but I like it. All right. So he helps their anxiety by gospeling them. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. I want you to, to know that the cure to your anxiety is belief. The cure to your troubled heart is belief. I think your Christian experience would be so much more fruitful if you could learn how to gospel others and gospel yourself. And so you look at that flow of thought, and he says, hey, guys, don't be anxious. Like, believe in God. Believe in me. God loves you. His house has it's got plenty of space for you. God, God has a plan for you. In fact, I am the plan for you. And I'm proof that God loves you and he cares for you deeply. See what he's doing? He's gospeling them. He's addressing their anxiety, the emotion they feel in the heart, with gospel truths. He's saying, if you could apply these truths to your life, that would answer the, the, the anxiety that you feel. Uh, we have, in, in the past here, defined discipleship as this. You know, discipleship means following Jesus. So a follower of Jesus, or somebody who's following Jesus, or who's being discipled, is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. And what he does here is he says, your anxiety is rooted in something you don't believe that you should be believing. Your anxiety is putting on display that you don't believe that God can do the impossible. And so I'm going to let you know God can do the impossible. And I'm about to do the impossible for you. And so he addresses the anxiety with belief. And he says, there's some, th- there's some form of unbelief or misbelief in your life that needs to be addressed. 
to say it another way, if you don't like the fruit in your life, you need to examine what your root beliefs are. And so if you have fruit of anxiety, you have fruit, fruit of stress, you have fruit of cynicism, you have some form, some negative fruit in your life that is, is on display, then you might want to just do some work to find out at the, your root, is there something you're, you're not believing that you should be believing? Or is there something that you're believing that you shouldn't be believing? You know, is, is there some misbelief at work in your life? Look, it's my, it's my thinking here that we tend to become who at our core we believe ourselves to be. And so much of the struggle that we have in life is just a, a, a matter of not understanding who we are in light of who God is and what we should do in light of what God has done. And so this will be uh, some old hat for a few of you, um, but we use the four cues here at New City quite often. And it helps us inform kind of our, our, our trajectory as a church. A lot of times we go back to it, and it's important to visit it. I'm going to use it in a way today that hopefully will be helpful for you. The four cues are simply this. Who is God? What has he done? In light of what he's done, who am I? In light of who I am, how should I live? Those are the four questions. Those four questions are powerful when you work them into your everyday life. And so one of the ways that we apply them here is we say, who is God? God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. What has God done? Well, God the Father has adopted us. God the Son has purchased us. God the Spirit has sent us. What, is God, what does that mean about me? Who am I in light of what God has done? Well, because God the Father has adopted us, I'm a child. Because God the Son has purchased me, I'm his servant or his slave. Because God the Spirit has sent me, I'm his missionary. We, we see the sending of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. I was, Jesus gives us a spirit to empower us to witness to the ends of the earth. And so at New City, we say we follow Jesus. Why? Because we're his servants, we're his slaves. In communities, why? Because we live as family, because we're children of God. And we, do, we live on mission, why? Because we're sent by the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about who we are as a church community, this is kind of informs who we think we are as a church community. We are a people who are following Jesus because we're his servants and his slaves. Uh, we live in communities because we are family. We're children, brothers and sisters, worshiping a heavenly father who loves us and cares for us. And we are on mission empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so much of what we do comes from those four cues. But the four cues can also perform a diagnostic function in our lives. And when you, when you think about them from fruit to root, uh, they can help us to, to diagnose issues in our life. And so when you flip the questions and you start asking them in reverse order like this, how am I living? Or what's the fruit of my life? What am I experiencing in my everyday life? Who do I think I am or ought to be in light of that experience? Uh, what do I think God has done or failed to do in light of who I think I am and in light of what I'm experiencing in life? And then ultimately, what does that say about what I think about God? What, what, what's my root belief in, in, in God? And so I'll just, you know, I, I like to do this every once in a while because I think if it's not applicable to me, it's not applicable to you. I can find as I get older, I'm 42, so I'm not old, I'm really young. But, uh, but you know, um, at, at 42, I've started to see some, some creep in my life. And one of the creeps I've been, this has sort of been, been sort of seeping into my life is a little bit of cynicism. I'm living with a little bit of cynicism. You know, I want to be like the old guy uh, one day. Like the person I want to be is the old guy one day who has seen so many miracles in his life that he can't help himself but to believe, with oh God, the impossible is possible. Right? That's what the guy I want to be. 
I want to be the old guy who has trusted God so much and so frequently in my life that I just expect miracles to happen. And I just walk around like, and, and I want young people to go, man, that guy is so disconnected. He is just so disconnected from reality. He actually expects miracles to happen. That's, that's the guy I want to be. I have found, though, that as I get older, I, I, cynicism is easy to hold on to. Uh, probably because I watch more news than I probably should, you know, or whatever. You know, I start, I start to get cynical about life. Cynicism happens when you project a past pain onto a future experience. It's when you start to say, you know what, I, what I'm going to give weight to in my experience is the pain and disappointment rather than God showing up over time. And when you start to give weight to the pain of your past experiences, you begin to project that pain on future realities and you begin to expect the negative to happen. And that's what promotes anxiety in our life. In fact, anxiety is experiencing failure in advance, says Seth Godin. So I think that's a, a wild uh, definition of anxiety. It's experiencing failure in advance, just expecting the negative to happen. But here's what will happen if you let cynicism creep into your life. Cynicism will eventually suffocate hope. It'll eventually just snuff it out. Because you will begin to believe that your past pain is a, is a greater voice in your life than, than anything that God has ever done for you. And you stop believing in what God could do. And see, in a low hope environment, we're hesitant to believe that with God anything is possible. So I don't want to live with cynicism. I don't want to just accept that as my norm. So I want to walk through the four cues and go, how do I address that? Now, I'm not living with a chronic sense of cynicism, just in case you're wondering. Man, the pastor needs some help, you know. And uh, Yeah, I do need help, but that's, that's another story, all right? I, 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 but it, it creeps, you know, and whenever, when I see it, I want to attack it with the gospel. I want, I, want, I want to apply the gospel in the best way possible. So I walk through the, 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 the four cues. How am I living? Who do I think I am or ought to be in light of that? You start kind of working that out, and this is, a, this is just a phrase that kind of, for me, notes some of what goes on when cynicism starts to creep into my life, is that I'm not able to determine the out, every outcome. In other words, I, I feel like I really should be God, and I really should be able to determine every outcome, and things should happen the way I want them to happen, but because I know of my own imperfection and things don't happen the way I want them to happen, I will mitigate sometimes my future pain by expecting the worst to happen, and maybe, you know, if something good happens, that becomes, that becomes icing on the cake. And that cynicism can, it can just creep into your life, and you just begin to expect the bad. You know, I'm like, I can't determine the outcomes. I don't know what's going to happen. And so when you walk through these sort of questions, how am I living? Who, who do I think I am or ought to be? Or what do I think God has done or failed to do? And when I'm honest, like when cynicism begins to seep into my life, and I feel like I need to, you know, I'm, I'm the only one that control the outcomes, and the outcomes are not controllable, and I feel out of control in life, I feel like God has left me to my own devices. And there are a lot of people who feel that way about God, that God is some kind of deist God. He's way up there and, uh, you know, somewhere far off. He's, he kind of spun the world into existence and he kind of let things go. And he's not really that involved in anybody's life. And sometimes I'm tempted to believe that God's just really not that interested in my life. He's got a lot of things to worry about. He's got a lot of things going on. He's got, you know, people have more troubles than I do and bigger problems than I have. And so what does God want to do with my life? And so sometimes that can creep in. And when you start kind of working those questions out, and you go, well, what does that say about God? Well, it's, it says that I, I believe that really God is an absent father. He's not involved. He's kind, of a, he's kind of a father in name only, but he's not really invested in my life. And, and there are a lot of us who, who have that feeling about God. We just have this feeling that God is, he, he's probably good to somebody. He's just never been really good to me. 
or he's been good to me in the past, but I can't trust in his goodness on an ongoing basis. And so we begin to let doubt kind of creep into our life. So when you use the four cues to address that issue, what you're doing is you're, you're working them back then in the other order. You're going, we think I would go back and say, what does, the, what does the Bible say about who God is? Who is he? And what does the Bible say about what he's actually done? And what's the Bible say about who I am in light of what he's done? And what, what does the Bible say about how I should live? In other words, I've got to give weight to something beyond just merely my experience. I've got to give weight to a truth, a belief that's beyond just what I feel. I've got to give, I've got to give weight to what the, the Bible has said objectively to be true about God. And what I know is that God is a perfect father. He is a perfect father. Now, that's hard for a lot of us to, to, to understand because a lot of us haven't had great dads. And when somebody comes along and says that God is a perfect dad, you go, well, I don't, you know, it, why couldn't you choose another metaphor? Because my father was terrible, and I have a hard time relating to God as a father because my, I've had a bad experience. In fact, I had this conversation with somebody this very week, and I said, you know, your dad was terrible. <laughs> I can, you know, I've heard the story. Your dad was terrible. And, but I want you to know something. This is what I was sharing to, to a friend this week. That, that you feel that feeling you feel about your earthly father and what he did and didn't do for you. Because in your mind, there is an ideal of what a good father is. Because that's, you wouldn't feel bad unless it was violating something inside of you that said, this, this is not the way it ought to be. And, in fact, the, the weight of your pain illustrates that, that the reality of the perfection of our Heavenly Father. Because he is the standard of what a good father is. And the pain you feel is a pain that's a reaction to your dad not being who he ought to be. And that means you have a sense of what a good father could be. And that sense of, that you have of what a good father could be is everything that God is. He, he saw you in your sin. He saw you in your brokenness. And he sent his son. That's what God did. He sent his son for me. I mean, that's, that's the reality of the Bible. That God is not an absent father. He's a very involved father. In fact, he's very invested. He's so invested, he sent his son for me. Like he is, He's deeply invested in my narrative. Which What does that make me then? Who is God? What has he done? Who am I then? I'm a child of the father and a co-heir with Jesus. That's who I am. Like I walk, I walk day to day in this world. I walk day to day in this world with a knowledge that I am a son of God. The Father in heaven who breathed stars into existence. I mean, he holds the universe in the palm of his hands. Whose, the hearts of kings are like water in the palms of his hands. I mean, my God is in control. He's my dad, and I'm his son. And that's how I walk in this world. And so how does that change how I live? Well, I should live like God loves me and is with me. Like every step of the way, he's with me. That I'm never alone in this world. But he's, he's actually guaranteed, he's guaranteed his presence with me and my salvation by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the part of the testimony that the Holy Spirit has within us, Romans 8, is to say that you are children of God. The Spirit, is job, one of his jobs is to affirm with inside of you that God is your dad. Like that's, his, that's, his, that's his message. And he's a good one. 
And so I, I look at the text like John 15, and I say, I, the text says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. With him you bear a lot of fruit. Apart from me you can't do anything. And so what I realize that I, I need to realize is I'm, when I walk in step with my Father, I'm walking in step with his power. But when I'm walking outside of his presence, I'm walking in my own power. And I think sometimes perhaps cynicism, uh, perhaps the cynicism that is in my heart, and maybe the cynicism that is in your heart, is due to the fact that we are, <laughs> that you spend and I spend too much time listening to ourselves rather than gospeling ourselves. Like we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, getting it into our heart, like living its reality. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so what happens is sometimes like, like, we, like we will sometimes, like we'll get cyn- like for me, I'll get cynical. And then in my cynicism, that, that'll, that'll suffocate hope. And in that, su- that suffocation of hope, what happens is a weakness in my prayer life because I just don't really expect miracles to happen anymore. So why would I pray for them? And then I read passages of the scripture that say, abide in me. Abide in me, and you can do great, you may bear much fruit if you abide in me. And then I start walking like I'm a child of God, and I'm stepping into that reality, recognizing that I, I belong to the Father in heaven, and I am his child, and he is my dad, and I walk with his power at work within me. The power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me, and that's my reality. And when that becomes my reality, that truth I believe, it changes everything about how I live. I don't walk in anxiety. I don't walk in worry. I don't walk in cynicism. Man, I walk in hope. I walk in expectation. I walk as though the the most powerful being ever conceived is on my side and for me and has proved it by the gift of his son. You see, that's my reality. And we have to become really, really skilled at gospeling ourselves. And so we need a couple of things. When we want to work the gospel into our everyday life, we need gospel application. And I hope those four cues will help you. Use them in both directions. And if there's fruit in your life that's not working, get skilled at applying the gospel, going, man, what's, what's, what's this thing that's not working in my life? What's, this, what, what's, what's that reality? What's that, what's that story telling me? And you ask the questions in the other order. Who is God, right? What has he done? Life with what he's done. <laughs> who am I? A lot of who I am. How do I live? Then you start working them back and forth and you use as a tool sort of gospel to self, as Jesus does with his disciples when they're troubled. I hope that'll help you. The second thing you need is gospel saturation because you can't apply something you don't have. Right? We can talk about gospel application all day, but you can't apply the gospel if you don't have it ready and available to, to apply. See, we cannot have a fruit-bearing life if we live apart from the fruit-bearing God. Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We have to know that reality that Jesus has said, look, I'm the vine, I give life, I give fruit in life, abide in me. Now, when we commit to abiding in God, we have to know this about God, that he loves loves you so much, like he loves you so much that he will receive you just the way you are, he does. 
But he also loves you so much that he won't leave you the way you are. You know, I, I, I love my kiddos. Man, I, I love my kiddos so much. And when I, when I see them misbehaving, or if I, when I just see like little, little hints of, 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 of just errant thinking or errant living that, that if left unattended will really hurt them in the end, it's my job to, to correct it. As a, as a dad, it's my job to correct it and to speak truth in their life and to help them to mature. And the Father will, he will faithfully prune us to be more fruitful. That's what he does. And in the, in the metaphor of John 15, Jesus is the vine and we abide in him and he helps us to bear this fruit. But the Father is the vine dresser. And as a vine dresser, he comes and he prunes us. He, he cuts us in order to create within us more fruitful lives. I'm the vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You should know this uh, about God the Father. He loves you enough to have high, high expectations of you and your faith. Like, it, you know, God has high expectations for you in your walk of faith. Like, there are big things that he can do through you if by abiding in him and letting him do the work in your life, like, you could really produce some great things for his kingdom. Like, you, you, don't have, you don't have to settle for mediocrity in your life. Like, you don't have to settle for a mediocre faith. Like, if you submit to the word and you submit to, to God and you let, him, you let him have his way with your life, it's going to hurt sometimes. There's going to be some pruning involved. But that pruning, what, what the net result of that pruning is, is a more fruitful life. And that's what God wants for you. Bruce Mill in his commentary said, pain produces. It is one of the primary laws of spiritual growth. It is, uh, it is a commonplace, both of horticulture and uh, of Christian experience, that the harder the pruning, the greater the fragrance and, the, and beauty, which will later be released. Our Heavenly Father is hungry for fruit from His vine. In order to produce it, will often, in his pruning, cut deeper than we should ever have chosen. And instead of asking, you know, the question when things, you know, get challenging in your life, what is God doing to, what is God doing to me? You can start asking, what is God doing for me? How in this difficulty is God developing me to be more fruitful in life? How is, how is, he, how is he growing me and maturing me in my, in my walk and my story? Matt Carter said, the difficulty you're going through right now may well be an act of kindness on God's part. He loves you and is shaping you into something more than you are now. Shaping takes a sharp blade and produces pain, but it's a reminder of God's love and commitment to you. Disciples bear fruit because God will not stop until they do. And when you submit to the word of God, you bow the knee and you do the work of applying the gospel, what will happen is sometimes you'll get rebuked. Sometimes you'll, you'll get cut and you'll get challenged. And in that cutting and that rebuking and that challenge, you'll have growth. And pain, pain does produce in that way. And so I want, I want you to, to be willing to do the work. I mean, do the work of addressing God through his word. You I mean, you need both those things, gospel application and gospel saturation. And gospel saturation requires a couple things, at least from this text. And one of the things that it requires is a commitment to word and prayer. A commitment to word and prayer. Now, this is 
one of those things that you kind of, hopefully you expect a pastor to say to you, um, but I, I, I couldn't, um, I can't underscore this enough, that you, usually what happens when I talk about, you know, reading your Bible and praying and making that a matter of life and practice is that the intellectual pushback I feel in the room is anxiety because I just don't have time for that. That's what I feel in the room. I just feel like people are like, man, I don't want, I don't have the time for that. Or it's not, maybe it's not, I don't see the, the fruit of that or the meaning of that. And, you know, I, listen, you can do hard things. And in doing hard things, you can and will experience great fruit in your life. If you abide in me, he says, my wor- and my words abide in you. That's how you abide in him, by abiding in his words. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be, it will be done for you. Abide in me, abide in my words, and pray, he says. By this, my Father is glorified that you may bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So when we're reading the Bible, something happens to us. It begins to shape us and to form us. And as we begin to pray and, and read, that, 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 is, that is a formative experience in our lives, how we saturate the life of the gospel. I should say, the aim of Bible reading is not to read the Bible, by the way, is to let the Bible read you. It's to be read by the Bible, to have it expose you, to read it with that kind of, that, that kind of, that kind of rawness of life, going, I'm, I'm willing right now to be shaped by and changed by the everlasting Word of God. Now, a lot of our prayer lives are, are prayer lives that, are, that, that begin with uh, some problem of life. And I'm, I'm, I'm admitting that some, that's often true with me. Like, I will begin my prayer because I feel led to prayer because life is hard. And I'll go, I've got to pray about that, right? But I want to ask you kind of a diagnostic question about your prayer life. In your prayers, when was the last time God started the conversation with you? When was the last time that when you, you just felt like God's beginning this conversation? His word is prompting me. What I've read from his word is prompting me. His spirit using his word is prompting me. I feel led by God because I've been so saturated in his word that he is speaking to me in real time through his word and beginning the conversation. And prayer time doesn't have to be just reaction to life. That prayer time can be ongoing community with the living God. It can be, it can be started by him and, and led by him. And so there are four things to do when spending time with God. These are four things that I do when spending time with God. There's no magic in this, but this is how I do it. I start with reading. And reading, it, it for me, is not uh, necessarily about the quantity, but the quality of reading. I want to challenge you to seek to understand the text in whole thoughts. Focus on what is easy to understand, and then work to your way to, toward the, the things that are harder Harder verses are often easier to understand after further reading. I, I think sometimes Christian people get hung up in um, the difficult passages. And they, they hyper-focus on them, as opposed to the very easy gospel passages that are there for you to read and be, to be receiving fruit from. And I think often people t- treat Bible reading as kind of the, a shotgun approach. It's a verse here and a verse there. 
in, in the old days, they had Christian bookstores. I don't know, do they still have those today? Uh, they might have, there might be one. If you own one, I'm sorry I said that out loud. But they're, 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 I used to go to a Christian bookstore, and the Christian bookstore on the checkout line, there would be testaments. It was like there were mints that had like little verses of scripture in them. They were kind of like Christian uh, fortune cookies. And you would read the verse, and it was like, what, you know? I don't know what this has to do with anything or where it is connected to the rest of the Bible. And, and so my encouragement to you is not to, to do devotional study around a singular verse, but whole thoughts of the Bible. And to, to start with like the book of James, or the book of John, or, the, or, or you know, start with the, you know, Mark's gospel because it's a shorter gospel. You know, start with something that you can really grab a hold of and just read whole thoughts. Like when you feel like a thought has begun and you feel like a thought has end, read that. Let that be the thing that leads you, and then meditate on it. This is key. I think meditation is key. Uh, a, a metaphor for meditation in the Bible is to chew on it. Uh, to meditate on the law day and night just means to chew the cud, uh, to, to, chew, to chew as a cow would chew, I mean, to, to really chew on it. Uh, it is important, I think, to commit verses to memory to think about them, to chew on them, to digest them. Let the words become a part of you and fuel you like food. So I took a word from John 15 this week. I, I, took a, I went on a, on a walk uh, at, at a golf course and just did you know, nine holes. And on the walk, uh, I just took with me one verse. And, and to, love, to love others as Christ has loved me, and I just kind of meditate on that verse. And, and I asked the Lord, how, how is this applicable to my life right now? How is it applicable to my life today? How is this applicable to my life this week? What do I need? What do I need from this word? How is this fuel for my tank, you see? And sometimes I think our, our difficulty in life has to do with the fact that we're running on fumes so often. And as a, as a Christian, you should be regularly going to the fill-up station and filling up, like reading and meditating and letting it go with you. And then pray about it. And this is what I mean by letting God start the conversation. You've read the word, you've meditated on the word, and then you, you say, God, I feel like you're leading me. I feel like you're saying this to me. I, I see it in your word. I'm sensing it in my spirit. I feel like this is the direction. And I want to pray about that. So after listening to God, speak to, speak to you, speak to him. Speak about the current topic of conversation that you are learning about. Pray for understanding. The Bible says some things are spiritually discerned, and some, 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 sometimes you need the Holy Spirit to reveal truths to you, and he does that. He reveals truths to you. And so this is like really simple stuff, like read and meditate and pray, but I think contemplate's a really necessary next step. And contemplation and meditation are slightly different. The way Eugene Peterson says it this way, he says, uh, um, contemplation means living the read, meditated, and prayed text in everyday, ordinary world, in the everyday, ordinary world. It's, it's applying it in the everyday stuff of life. It's like I'm contemplating now, how does, how, now what has this word said to me? What is God saying to me? I've talked to God about it. I've asked for strength, actually, in applying it, and now I'm working on it. Uh, you see, gospel saturation requires, I think, a commitment to word and prayer, but also requires a commitment to love and service. In other words, like when you read the Word of God and you meditate on it and you pray about it and then you start working it out into everyday life through contemplation, meaning you, you, like you, just, you, think, you think about it throughout the day, here is how I'm going to apply this Word, what begins to happen is action. 
Bible's reading isn't about knowing deeply, it's about living deeply. Bible study isn't about growing your Bible IQ, it's about being formed into and shaped into the image of Jesus. It's formational in nature. And as you read and meditate and study the Word of God and pray about the Word of God, what you will what you can expect and what you will experience is life change. You, you, you will see like a difference in the way that you live. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Like every day that you're walking in this journey called life, you're abiding in his love, living out the truths of the gospel. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And now I'm going to give you a commandment for you to abide in. The commandment, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Now, I just, you know, I've been walking with that verse this week. Here's what happens when you walk, when you take a verse like that, you just walk with it. One is you recognize Jesus isn't saying, this is my suggestion for how you can have a little bit better life, right? This is not Jesus who is our God and whom, with whom we serve. He's, we're slaves of Jesus. He's rescued us and redeemed us. We obey him. And he, this is not Jesus' suggestion for our everyday life. This is his commandment. He's saying, hey guys, I have, a real, I have a real high calling for you. And this real high calling for you is going to cost you something. This might be a part of God's pruning in your life. It might be a part of that, that really difficult thing. But pain brings gain. Love one another as I've loved you. Love one another as I've loved you. Now there's a whole lot of time we can just spend on how, how has God loved you? How, is, how, is, how has he loved you? What's the nature of his love? It's self-sacrificial. It's my life for your life. It's what you need over what I need. It's what's best for you rather than what's best for me. It's willingness to suffer so that you could be saved from suffering. And you start putting that love of Jesus in context of your own life. And then you start asking the question, well, who's in the one another category? And that's where people get really, you know, they get really challenged. They're like, if you narrow, if you narrow the circle small enough and it's just you, you've got that one, you know? Um, but the, you, this, this excludes just narrowing the circle to you. It's loving other people. Loving one another probably is the immediate disciples, but it applies to the greater community as the scripture does. Apply it to the greater community to love others the way Christ has loved us. This is what happened to me, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I meditated on this verse. I prayed about this verse. I contemplated it. And I felt like God was telling me to love somebody that I didn't want to love. And God was saying, I want you to love this person that you don't want to love the way I loved you. And so I said, I don't want to do that. I just don't. That's hard. And the Holy Spirit says, you can do hard things. You're going to bear much fruit. 
fruit's going to come from this. You're going to have a more fruitful life. Abide in me. You're not on your own. And the cynicism begins to creep into my soul a little bit, you know? Because I think, if I love this person, if I try to love this person the way Christ has loved me, it's going to go terribly wrong. Nothing good can come from it. And then I knew the gospel myself, you know? I just need to, I need to work the gospel into my soul. So I start to walk with expectation, you know? Walk with hope. I start to walk like God is real. He's powerful. He's involved. He's engaged. He's listening to me. He's speaking to me. We're in conversation. I'm his kid. And then like truths of the Bible start kind of popping up. If God is for you, who can be against you? And you start going, man, it's there. It's in the, it's in the word and it's applicable right now to my life. And so I'm choosing to step into it. The two things that you need, you need, you need gospel application. If you want to wear the gospel in everyday life, you need gospel saturation. And you can't apply what you don't have, friends. You just can't apply what you don't have. And it's, it sounds like just like this dumb thing that pastors sometimes recommend that you do with your life. I, I want to tell you that you are crippling yourself in this life if you are not leaning into God for strength. You're not abiding in him. It's like a branch separate from the vine. Like you cannot expect fruitfulness unless you're abiding in him. And my hope for you is that you'll leave today going, okay, I have some tools in applying the gospel and I feel convicted about reading the gospel and I'm going to do something about it. This is the hard part for me as a pastor because I want to make you do something about it, right? And I'm a cynic, so I'm thinking, oh, you're not going to do anything about it. I just, I just wasted 35 minutes of my time, you know? Like, that's how, that's how, that's how, I, that's how I feel, all right? So I'm trying to step into faith, all right, a little bit? All right. Love you guys. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you bless us. Uh, thank you for not leaving us as orphans in this world. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. I pray your Holy Spirit would move now, that you would both convict but also lead us. Uh, I pray for submissive hearts, hearts that are willing to, to just submit to you and to your way and to your will, that you'd help us not to be arrogant, not to be boastful, not to be proud, that we would walk in humility, trusting that you are the one that has the power and authority, and that we rest in your power, we rest in your authority, and that we would be willing servants of you. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.